welcome to Life in the Land, a Grazing Her podcast telling stories of women living across rural and remote Australia. My name is M. Herbert, your host of this really special series of Life in the Land, where the Grazie Her team choose their favourite story of the year and explain how it touched or inspired them. Today, we're hearing the story of Kay Hull Ao, as chosen by Grazie Her team member Sally Jackson. Born in the New South Wales Northern Tablelands town of Gyra and best known for her long and distinguished career in politics, Kay entered Parliament House in 1998 as the Nationals member for the Riverina and was elected for four more terms before retiring prior to general elections in 2010. In 2022, Kay stepped down as the chairwoman of AgriFutures. Here is Sally explaining why she was so compelled to share Kay's story. Hi, my name is Sally and I look after advertising and partnerships here at Grazier. My favourite Life on the Land episode this year would have to be Kay Hull. I found her story really interesting, how she got into politics and what she did for the AgriFutures Rural Women's Award. I also got a lump in my throat as to why she is retiring. I found her story really interesting and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I did. I'm not a political animal. I, I talk about more, um, my ambition is about representing voice and being, you know, trying to make things um, as equitable as I can for rural, regional, remote Australians. And I've always felt like that. This is Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling stories of women living in rural, remote and regional Australia. I'm Sky Manson, your host for this episode. Today's guest is Kay Hull, born in Gyra, New South Wales, but best known for her long and distinguished career in politics, which actually was never part of the plan. As a member of the National Party, she started her foray into Parliament House in 1998 and was then re-elected for four terms before retiring prior to the general elections in 2010. Kay Hull is small in stature, but big on heart, and is a genuine campaigner for the everyday man and woman. I've been compelled to speak with Kay today about her life after her most heartfelt address at the AgriFutures Rural Women's Award Gala celebrations in Canberra last week, to which she stepped down as the chairwoman of AgriFutures to a standing ovation. Kay Hull, welcome to Life on the Land. Thank you. It's great to be with you. I, like so many others, was so taken by your address at the AgriFutures Gala last week. So I wanted to start by asking you where you started which in your, in your address, which was to talk about your grandmother, Sarah Jane. Mm. Who was she? Sarah Jane Campbell was my maternal grandmother, who's quite uneducated, and um, she was married to my grandfather, Henry James Campbell. At age 35, my grandfather was obviously intoxicated and had been drinking at the local hotel and was riding a horse home and has somehow fallen off the horse and has frozen to death in the snow. 
And my grandmother had just had a baby, given birth to a baby and had seven other children, uh, little children. And one was in hospital um, with heart failure from rheumatic fever. In those days, no treatment. And uh, she had a massive acreage of a property, a huge debt. Um, she had eight children, one, you know, terminally ill. And, uh, and her husband had just frozen to death in the snow. And so, of course, she was in dire straits. Um, the authorities came to literally remove her children and to, you know, obviously she had a debt, a farm debt that they didn't think a woman um, could clear. And uh, she held them off, um, actually, uh, with a shotgun and uh, telling them that they were not coming onto her property. And um, and I think it took, uh, from the tales of, that I was told as a child, uh, it took about a week for that to um, to eventually dissipate. They left uh, the children with, with, uh, with my nan. Um, my mother was two years old at the time. And um, so, and she went on to educate, or she went on to educate all of her children. She farmed, single-handedly farmed those acres, cleared her debts and achieved such milestones. Um, and I think the, the telling factor for me in my life was the beginning of my volunteering because I was um, five years old and my nan was very ill. And um, she was in hospital for a little while and I started going there, um, walking there after school. And, um, and then I kept walking there because when I went there to visit, um, all the older, elderly people in the hospital uh, would tell me about my nan. You know that woman there? She's a salt of the earth woman. Oh, my goodness, you wouldn't stand in Sarah Jane Campbell's way, you know. And... Um, and I started giving them afternoon tea. And then, of course, would tell me that I would have to help Henry or, or you know, Ted or, or whomever there um, with their afternoon tea. And then when Nan came out of hospital, I continued to do that every afternoon after school because I loved hearing what they had to say. Um, they used to tell me the most amazing stories about Nan and what she would do and how she would achieve what she achieved and... And it was just a formation of my volunteering. Um, I volunteered for the rest of my life because, and, and I, I, I put that down to um, the beginning of my life, just wanting to hear more about my nan. So you've told me what she did and the actions that she took, but what kind of person was she? Was she bold, brave, kind? Tough. Um, very kind to me. I was a little child um but she was very tough very strict very very strict and of course she would have to be uh she's she had a tough life mm. and you know some of my cousins and I disagree on my nan because one of us had a lot to do with her um in 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 parental style because he'd lost his mum uh very very young and um and, you know, it was my, my nan's son, my uncle, and he lost his wife very early and uh, the children, nan helped with raising the children and she was very strict with them. Mm -hmm. And so his memories are that nan would, would take his comics off him and not let him, you know, she was too strict, she was too tough. And so, um, you know, they're varying memories, but I, I keep 
being, you know, reminding them of the life that Nan had and why she had never really been able to afford a luxury of, of you know, being probably, you know, warm, compassionate, um, time giving, etc. She never had that in her life. And uh, and I prefer to, um, you know, to be able to say what she has achieved and what she achieved as a woman. And this is in 1924, yeah. her husband passed away. Mm. Could you imagine? There was no. no no facilities, no anything, no electricity, kerosene lamps, kerosene fridge if you were lucky. You know, there was no amenities, no tractors. There was horse and plough. She would have draft horses, you know, all lined up, you know, with with with, with physical ploughing behind them. Mm. And she would be in, out in that field. That's my memory, you know, of her even as an elderly woman. This is why it is so important to share these stories because I can't imagine it and um, this generation is slipping away from our vernacular and there are such important lessons as you have taken to be mm-hmm. to be learnt from that time. Um, so where was this, Kay? In Gaira, up in uh, the New England. Um, and that's my hometown. That's where I was born. Um, so that's where I go home and and uh, tend to my family's graves, etc. So um, in Gaira, and uh, it was cold. It's a cold. And everyone will know when we talk about, you know, uh, falling off your horse and passing away in the snow, people might think you're up in the snowy mountains or somewhere like that. No, we were in Gaira. It was very cold. It gets very, very cold in Gaira. So <laughs> was your childhood, your entire childhood spent in Gaira and was it on a farm or were you in town? My father had been called up to, um, you know, in the service in the war times in the 40s, right? So um, he lost his farm in the time because he was called up and he couldn't pay his farm off. Um, so he lost we lost his farm and then he went on to work for the Postmaster General called was the PMG in those days. Mm-hmm. And so we were in town, but uh, Nanny was still on the farm and uh, Dad had just farming in his blood and... Um, we, you know, I grew up in town and, um, you know, I left Gaira, uh to go to Sydney as a young, uh, just coming out of school as a young girl and went into work in the stock exchange um, in Sydney. Mm, the country is in my heart. Never, so, never lost it. Um, yeah, I think, well, with such strong roots and having to, and such sort of bravery and strong characters within your family, I think that's completely understandable, but no one really ever loses their connection to the country, do they? No, no, they don't. And I think that's the values um, that we share and and stand for. Um, It is a real value of community and you know, I've gone on to go to Sydney, went overseas, came back and came to Wagga Wagga uh, for a visit um, about 45 years ago, 46 years ago, and uh, for a visit, met my husband and settled down in Wagga Wagga and started our own family business. And uh, But, you know, it's funny because for the small part of my life, the 15, 16 years of my life um, that I lived at, at, in Gaira, I still say um, I'm going home mm. when I when I'm when I'm doing something. I say, like, "Oh, I'm going home." Mm. 
I, I can't wait to talk about all that you've achieved, but I'm really interested in your mind as a young child and how sort of big your horizons were. I don't know if you can remember back to that time, but um, you, you said that you went on to work in the stock exchange um, mm. after you finished school, which is so amazing. So what did you want to become and how did you and and how did you kind of imagine that that would happen outside of living and growing up in Gaira? I, I didn't imagine that would happen actually mm. um, because when you come from, that's why I have this passion, when you come from a very small town, um, sometimes it's not easy to get access to education opportunity and particularly back then for me, um, it was not easy for me uh, because we went to, uh, when I left school and I uh, was year 10, was as high as our, our Cent Gaira Central School went. And if you wanted to go year 11 and 12, you would have to go to Armadale. Um, and it just kind of didn't, uh, it just didn't gel for me. I didn't, I, my family were not, you know, were, I didn't know we were poor, but we were. Um, I can see now we were poor, but I, I had no idea we were mm. poor. Um, we were all the same. We're all very equal in our community, I felt. Mm. Um, but I see now that we definitely were poor. And uh, so um, I really had no choice but to look uh, outside um, of the of Gaia and my community for, you know, ad to advance to the future and ended up in Sydney um, in a, like a traineeship in the stock exchange um, and worked there and loved it. But it was a very male-dominated area. It was primarily male. Couldn't um, get more male, really. Yeah, it was, really? particularly then, yeah. particularly then. And um, and then I went over to New Zealand and and then I got into the, you know, various tourist industries and um, did a lot of travel and, as I said, came back and and moved into Wagga Wagga. But as a child, the question is, what was my aspirations and my aims? Uh, to, play, to play sport and to dance. That was it. <laughs> I was not, I was not a, um, I came from a very strong educational family. My uncles went on to be school teachers and other things. My brother was a school teacher and, you know, I had no aspiration, just play sport, play it well and dance. That was it. I was so, so my volunteering was about raising money because when you live in Gaira, um, you don't have bands and you don't have anything. So it was literally about how we raise money in school to be able to get the band, um, the Finks up from Armadale and play it our, you know, play for us. So, you know, and, and how we could, um, you know, get benefit and, you know, we catch a train to Armadale for hockey and Tamworth for hockey, etc. So it was all about raising money to give us a great time at school. And um, I was not one of those driven kids that knew that they wanted to be somebody I just wanted to play sport and dance. Yeah, you were just taking life as it came. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. So what's the transition into working in the stock exchange? Was that something that you were encouraged to do by someone within the family or did you just pick the job? I just it just chose something that was like available that somebody told me could possibly happen. I had to find some accommodation when I got into Sydney and you know, learn to live on my own as a very young person. And um, 
yeah, I it was just such a culture shock. Um, but um, I, I, I'm proud of, you know, I was getting $35 a week and I was paying $25 in board. Um, so um, I had to get a rail ticket. I'd feed myself, try and clothe myself on that. And my mum and dad had no resources and means to provide me with assistance in that financial way. There was no phones and, mm. you know, no anything, um, no mobile phone. Um, so my contact with my family was very, very rare. Um, so I was really on my own mm. um, and had to find my way forward. Um, and it was tough. It, you know, it shaped me as well. It did shape me. I've been lucky. I have, you know, had uh, obviously struggles at times and challenges, but I've been lucky. I've fallen on my feet most time, and um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pretty resilient now. I think. Mm. Do you believe that that it's been luck, or when my daughter-in-law sent me, this sounds crazy, but she was out at the cemetery visiting my other daughter-in-law who's just recently passed away, and there was a headstone there, and she took a photograph of it and sent it to me um, and it had uh, on it, um, it was a tribute to a particular gentleman, the harder I work, the luckier I got. Mm. And that has been my mantra for my daughter-in-law, my kids, my grandkids. You know, it's funny, people tell me how lucky I am, how lucky I am. But, you know, the harder I work, the luckier I got, you know. And so it's been a bit of a mantra for me. And that's been a bit of a the process. I, I, I'm I'm been in a tough industry. When my husband and I started our business, it was a smash repair business, um, a very tough industry. Uh, Twenty eight smash repair shops in the city of Wagga Wagga. When you go to an accident, it's one or two cars mm. and twenty tow trucks turning up. Mm. You know, you know. My husband broke his back, and um, we're very early in our business entry. And we, I was very 25 or 26 or something like that and with three children and, and he broke his back and I was we were told that he may not, um, you know, he, he, may, he may not come through with A, being able to walk. Mm. And so I had to, no choice, I went to the hospital and told him that I would be a tow truck, I, I would get a tow truck driver's licence. And he was just shocked, you know, like, what? And I said, well, what else? You know, we've got yeah. 25 staff down there and I've got three kids and you're here. I've got to run a business. And he said, I think we better close it down. And I said, well, we can't do that. So I went out and got a tow truck driver's licence. And it was very difficult because I had to learn a lot to do that. And I was, the boys at work taught me so much and here I was in a little skirt and stockings and shoes and little jackets underneath cars and trying to work out how to hook really? up. Yeah, work out how to hook up a tow truck, uh, a cardboard tow truck. They were and and the boys were so amazing, um, and would help so me. So, what was the reaction when you rocked up in the tow truck to pick up a car? Incredible, because when I went to get my license the guy at the RTA then said to me, no, you can't have a tow truck driver's licence. And I said, why? And he said, women don't have tow truck driver's licences. I said, what rule? Where does it say that? Mm. He said, well, I don't think it does, but you don't, women don't have tow truck driver's licences, right? I said, well, this woman's got to, you know, so I've got a business to run. So eventually, you know, I, I was able to convince to go for a test and, and then when I did my test, 
came back and I knew I'd passed my test. And the funny part about it is he said I had failed. And then I said, well, why, is, why have I failed? And he said, well, you haven't got a broom attached to your tow truck. Oh, <laughs> so I thought, here's a housewife. I haven't got a broom now. You know, that's a... <laughs> how ironic. <laughs> how <laughs> ironic. <laughs> Went back to the shop. The boys welded up a, a bracket. We put a broom on the back of the tow truck and away we went because you had to sweep up the debris of oh, the roads yeah, with your yeah. brooms. And when I started turning up to, um, you know, to accidents, um, I was, of course, the only woman mm-hmm. and uh, generally had to find a babysitter before I could go to an accident. And they were time critical in those days, you know. Yes, absolutely. And um, my next door neighbour was fantastic. And uh, and so in the first, I was a bit of a novel. They used to laugh and joke. But then I started to sort of get a bit of traction and then it became a bit of a problem, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, but then... It changed the culture in our industry. It changed the culture in Morgawaga uh, of tow truck driving because I became more concerned about the people in the car than actually getting the car. And that's where I learned the value of life. That is where I learned the value of life in the tow, as a tow truck driver. When I needed to be in the tow truck, I was there. And in those days, there was no emergency services. There was no anything. There was the tow truck drivers and there was the ambulance. And if you you were the people responsible for getting people out of a vehicle and saving their lives or their lives had ended within that vehicle. And I witnessed more than I would most people would ever in a, in a medical profession would perhaps witness, mm-hmm. you know, in life and the end of life in that respect. And I got this amazing appreciation for life. And in my 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 son's Um, When my husband passed away with pancreatic cancer 10 years ago, my sons remembered at his funeral that the house, you never knew who was going to be in our house when you came home because mum or dad would have picked all these people who had accidents on the highway and were stranded or had people in hospital and they'd all be brought home to our house to stay. And um, you never knew who was going to be in our house. Um, And so... I learned, yeah, I learned the value of giving and the culture of sharing and caring and what is true life. And, yeah, I've had some pretty extraordinary, very mainstream, very grassroots experiences that have shaped the way I feel and think, yeah. So I suppose that's a nice segue into your more than two decades long career in politics mm. and in the wings of Parliament House. How, what's the transition there? How did that come about? That came about as um, a result of my, as the result of my business, so of my husband and my business. Um, the the uh, council were going to put a median strip along, right along the street in front of all the businesses um, which meant that no one would be able to turn into any of our businesses along the street. And um, I went to a public meeting uh, that the Wagga Wagga City Council had put on and um, I spoke passionately for those businesses that if they were to do this, they had to put turning areas in um, because our businesses were employing people that were underpinning our community strength. And we had to be considered 
And this gentleman came up and said to me, I think this was in about May, and he said to me, you know, there's a council election in a couple of months uh, for, you know, a council, aldermen at the time, they were called aldermen. Um, why don't you run for council? That was a great speech. I said, I think I will. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I had no idea. I had no idea. And uh, um, so I went to Graham and, and the kids, I said, I'm going to run for council. And Graham said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to run for council. And, um, oh, all right. They so we all been surprised, best. right? Like, it, <laughs> it was was like, it quite a, you know, understandable thing for Kay to yeah, do? Yeah, I think so. It was a family thing. The boys, we sat down, we wrote out all of our personal messages. We we photocopied. We got them all photocopied. And we with the boys and Graham and I, we'd all do mail drops in the mailboxes on the weekends and, you know, I made this platform that I was standing for the business, the rights of business people, you know, mm -hmm. to have a say and be respected for what they were delivering to our community. They weren't just a rate source, you know, they were more than that. And um, and as ignorant, I was so ignorant. I was so ignorant. And I got, uh, it was very unheard of. I was elected um, in that in that council election. When I got in there, um, when the median strip came up, it was a conflict of interest. So I had to leave the room. So I couldn't have a say. Uh, so right, I didn't yeah. do my homework very well, did I? <laughs> I just actually acted on, um, you know, oh, okay, I'm going to do that. And uh, I did it, got there, and then hadn't read the rules. So then you have to take a new, you have to have a rethink. How are you going to do this and how are you going to represent those businesses? And I did. And I became the chair of Tourism Wagga Wagga because that would bring visitation into our communities. That would bring people into the door of our businesses, our coffee shops, our, you know, restaurants, our, our you know, retailers, et cetera. And uh, so I went on, a, I, I led from there and went on that different tangent, you know. Um, so that's how it started. I never intended to be in politics. I started to represent, you know, that's not right what you're doing to us. It was a, it was more of an, a reaction uh, to something yes. that was happening to us in the community. And then I went on to, I think I was questioning at the time Bob Carr and the Labor government on various issues of tourism and never, ever recognising the regions as the destinations that they were and it was all about the Opera House and it was all about Sydney and, you know, that tourism value multiplier effect for, for the country was significant. Um, and I never stopped letting up. We'd go to conferences and I'd be the first one up to, you know, to give this powerful speech about... And then we had the Seven Wonders campaign, the New South Wales Tourism Seven Wonders campaign. It, 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 it was, you know, the most incredible experience and feeling to see that campaign unfold where, where the bird flew through every region mm -hmm. and, and depicted New South Wales as more than Sydney Opera House and, yes, you know, yes. um, and the bridge. And, and so then I was put on the board of Tourism New South Wales and uh, went to events and, you know, things like that with them. I probably gained a profile in that area. And then, you know, the member for Riverina, um, Noel Hicks, was standing down um, as the Nationals member for Riverina. And I was not a member of a political party at all, at all. Okay, but where do your values lie, you have to think, you know. My mum was absolutely country party to the core. My dad was absolutely Labour Party to the core. Okay, mm -hmm. so um, I'd never had to think about it really, you know. 
I don't know even remember how I voted. I probably voted one way or another here and there, you know. Um, but then I had to start to think about when I had some approaches from the three parties, actually, from three, you know, would you, you know, um, I had to think, where, you know, well, no, this is not what I envisaged my life would be. But my husband was very, Graham was so supportive. And, oh, my God, my boys, they were so supportive. Mum, you're already doing it. Why don't you try, you know? And uh, I did. I, I thought then I had to look at everyone's, the way everyone's policies were. And I was a businesswoman and been through some very hard business times in the 80s. Um, you know, very hard business times, a collapse of pyramid, um, you know, interest rates, people were receiving 17, 18% in interest, but they were paying 22, 23 in debt, you know, mm -hmm. I was in that role, I was in, we were business in debt, you know, um, so I had to work out, you know, the policies of parties, where they fit for businesses and for, you know, for people to progress and to give opportunity and and uh, so and and you know what, I looked at every policy and every platform and I felt passionately that I could live within the majority of the National Party ethics and beliefs and so um, there I decided to join the National Party and that was you know and then then I went for a pre-selection, not thinking for a moment that I would get it and I was told clearly I wouldn't get it. Yeah. You know, it's, people people could tell me I wouldn't get it, you know. Um, and then I did. And then um, then the election was coming about and everyone was saying, well, look, don't be disappointed because you probably won't be elected because we have such a diverse culture right across the Riverina. Um, you know, we have a culture that really, you know, women are, you know, are not clearly up front just yet, you know. Um, so just use it as an experience and and have a really good shot at it. Um did I did. You know, did you feel like you would win? I knew I'd do. I felt really, you know what? I think there's no reason why. You know what? I just thought there's no reason why they wouldn't. Mm. Why would they? I mean, you know, I'm a. I, I didn't look at the gender thing at the time. Yeah. Just thought it was what I was what I was feeling, and I could only talk about what I was feeling. I'm not a. I'm not a politically. I'm not a political animal. I I talk about more. My ambition is about representing voice and being, you know, trying to make things um, as equitable as I can for rural, regional, remote Australians, and I've always felt like that. So, um, no, I actually didn't think at any time, oh, you won't get elected. And so I, I didn't even think I will get elected. I just thought I'm just going to do this. Yeah. I'm just going to give it my best shot. Yeah. And I did. Yeah. And I was elected, you know. But then comes the next step of going in. That was the question, you know, where, how did my political life start? Well, that's, that's kind of how it started. And you spoke also about feeling unease initially in Parliament House. Tell me more about that. Definitely. It was where the issue of education and the value of education started really entering in my mind. And the fact that I hadn't gone to university and I hadn't, you know, progressed my education. And um, I was always, uh, it's a very big place, Parliament House. And in those days, uh, when you went there, you literally went there and you were given no support, and no assistance. You were showed to an office 
and you found your own way. Nobody was there to guide you, help you, um, support you, give you an understanding. You had a one day of, of um, you know, a kind of like a bit of an induction day. This is what you've got to do. The bells are going to ring. This is, you know, you've got to go there. You've got to be there at this amount of time, um, blah, blah, blah. So you had a, we had one induction day. And so when you get there and you're sworn in, like on the day of my swearing in, I don't. I didn't realize the enormity of the whole thing. We couldn't find a park. We were driving round and round and round in Canberra. We couldn't even find a park. I mean, you know, my kids were following me in their car, and I, love it. I so had real. no idea of the enormity of this. You know, we finally found a park so far away from Parliament House. I didn't even know that I could go in underneath it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And. Yeah. Um, and, and and we were running up and and I was like it was going to open at ten o'clock and we were still checking in a quarter to ten you know I hadn't even and I was supposed to go in there and get a swearing in I had no idea of the enormity of this and it was I only look back on it sometimes I look back and I think oh my god <laughs> you know, like um anyhow um yeah I, I I started to really question myself um wow am I really able to do this and um. And, I, and, and, you know, it's a very big place and I was always lost. Um, I'd try and find my way to one committee room, looking at all the artwork along the wall, thinking now that's got to be on my right when I come back, you know, oh, yes. and I never saw it again. I'd come back a tote. I'm very bad in direction, right? And uh, it was all those things that you think are really big at the time and then you get into the real classic legislative, you know, and you get this heartfelt feeling but then you think should I be reading it from a... Um, a more educated look rather than a, a, a passionate, heartfelt look. You start to question yourself. I'm looking at this legislation and I'm thinking, what does it really mean from a, you know, heartfelt look? What does it do or what does it change for us or what does, how does it impede us or how does it, you know, give us strength? And as a country person, that's what I feel that was my role in there. And, uh, yeah, I did start to question that. And I, I spent a lot of time going through legislation and really understanding it, which didn't hurt me. It grew, it, it grew my knowledge. But I did question it. Yeah, I did question it a lot. Um, and I put a lot of effort and time into really reading, listening. And I know I would stand up in the party room, in the joint party room, and I'd, I'd have my passionate say and, and then I'd sit down and, you know, it gets pretty hectic in those rooms believe me and then we struggle. what did you need to do initially to find your voice or to connect in you know the house of representatives in that room uh, I just did what I've always done spoke without restriction I didn't filter it I didn't try to pretend I was anybody else was that scary initially yeah absolutely because I did anyway. I did it. I couldn't be anyone else because I am who I am. And I was always in the back of my mind that it was not from an educated, highly educated knowledge. It was from an experienced knowledge. And you do question that. Oh, there's so many questions that come out of that. So my first one is imposter syndrome. It was that when you were in parliament for the, your whole term was being female a bigger issue or was this imposter no. syndrome within yourself the big issue? Female was kind of 
brutally frank and honest, female was never not was never an, an issue for me. I never ever received pushback. I believe because I was a female, I never received any, um, you know, adverse comment, outcome, un inappropriate, um, you know, comments or actions or nothing I did not have one unfortunate of those experiences I've got to be honest it did not happen to me um so it was female was never the issue for me I've never I've just not seen myself like that you know um so it was never an issue for me did did I just did it happen to me and I didn't see it I don't know, but I didn't see it. It didn't happen, right? So I didn't have incidences from it at all, at all, okay? Um, no, it was more about my education. It was about am I informed and educated well enough to be here? And there was a one pivotal time that told me that I should be here, that I should, I, I, you are, you are the person that should be here. And um I was in a committee meeting and uh, I, um, I was in a health meeting and the, the Rural College of General Practitioners were presenting to us and they were presenting in a way that it just didn't quite make sense. We were, we were looking at um, how to put in um, various boundaries of where you could be more compensated for being in the rural GP or in the rural workforce, uh, health workforce, right? And it just wasn't, I wasn't getting, they were using a lot of acronyms and things that I wasn't picking up. I just was not. And so I was I was thinking I'm losing this because I don't understand where they're, where they're at. And so I put my hand up and I said to the presenter, um, excuse me, but... I have no idea what your acronyms mean. <laughs> I don't understand it. Uh, could you give me a, a clearer explanation of what we're actually talking about? Because it was acronym after acronym after acronym. And I said, I was, everybody else seemed to be getting it, but I didn't, you know? And so I just said, I, I don't understand this. I, you know, could you? And so they gave a, you know, there was this very long silence. I mean, seriously, you know, when there's this silence, and you know that everyone's looking at you and you know, oh, my goodness, I've just, oh, my goodness, you know, and your heart pumps yeah. up and your stomach flips up into your throat and you think, yeah. you think, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. And um, but I sat there, waited out the silence, and then the presenter gave an explanation of every single acronym, what they meant, how it worked, why, and it was a grassroots presentation then. Mm. And I was able to participate more, more conscientiously, more passionately than anybody in that room. You know why? Because I knew it. Because I was on Wagga Wagga City Council. I was an alderman there. I was a deputy mayor. I had done a whole health report. It was passionate for me um, with uh, two people, Sue Mori and Jack Best, we were doing reports on 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 what we needed to what would be required to have rural practitioners, health practitioners, etc. I knew my stuff. I absolutely had absolute knowledge of it, but I didn't have the you know that 
technical, you know, terminology for it, but I knew the issue. And I engaged so heavily in there that, in fact, after the meeting, uh, the presenter came over and asked me, what craft did I practice in? And I said, uh, I looked at him and he said, uh, what medical profession do you are you practicing in? Uh, you know, are you specialty or are you GP? Or, and I said, well, actually, I'm a tow truck driver that brings <laughs> the patients to the hospital. <laughs> I bring the patients to the medical practitioners. You know, um, do you think that kind of thing happens, especially oh. when you see like people from rural and regional communities who are a little bit removed? Um, mm. that they have no idea of how wonderful their knowledge and deep their knowledge mm. actually is and the relevance of it? Well, that's my messaging because I the big learning curve and why I got the realisation after that was that the colleague that was sitting next to me, I heard him speak or to the side to the colleague and he was very senior minister and had been very senior in health. And he said to the colleague next to him, I'm glad she asked that question because I had no bloody idea what they were talking about. Mm. But nobody else was prepared to ask the question, all right? So we would have made decisions on something that we didn't know, the, the you know, you do, we didn't know the core of. And that was when I had this light bulb. I literally danced out of that room that day. I danced out. I was happy. I was almost like shouting from the rooftops, you know. I was like, yes, I'm here. Yes, I do deserve to be here. Yes, this is the voice that they need. Yes, we need highly educated voices. 1,000%. We need that. I've never been anti-education. I'm very pro-education, but I'm for equity of value of every person's capability, right, and not just one value. And I knew I was right. I knew I was in this spot, and they were not going to shut my voice down from then on, and I didn't. And, and yes, to answer to your question, what sadly disappoints me at times is in various rooms that I'm in, I do see people that I know, I clearly can see they, they're not getting this, they don't understand it, but they go with it because they don't want to, they don't want to bring attention to themselves and literally just simply say, look, I don't understand that. Could you explain that a little bit better? And I think if we did that, we'd start to have more faith in ourselves. And also just generally, if we knew from the outside that our representatives and people in power were behaving in such a way there'd be more faith in the process and the outcomes and you know what I firmly believe passionately from my heart that we have better outcomes Mm. better outcomes if we because you have to understand the experience you have to understand the impact you have to have felt it you have to think it through you have to put yourself in that position. There's been times when I've had, I've taken, it was always my mantra, I take the voice of the Riverina to Canberra. I do not bring Canberra voice back to the Riverina. That was my job, right? And there would be times when I would have very divergent views from my own, 
right? And from my parties. And I had divergent views from my party as well, believe me, you know. Um, and they would they would say that categorically. Um, but I would listen to those divergent views. And even if I didn't agree and I was vehemently opposed to what they were saying, I would say, I would I do not agree with your with your voice. I do not agree with what you're saying. I do not think it's going to be in the best interests, but I will take your voice and you will have it put as passionately as if I did. Mm. I'm not here to represent only those that agree with us. I'm here to represent all of those who have a right to have a say. Applications for the 2023 AgriFutures Rural Women's Award are now open. In 2023, AgriFutures and the event's platinum sponsor, Westpac, will be offering up to $42,000 in grants and mentoring support for successful state and national finalists. Additionally, AgriFutures offers a Rural Women's Acceleration Grant designed to support seven Australian women with a learning and development bursary of $7,000 to enable them to bring their idea, cause or vision to life. Applications for both programs are now open until Wednesday, 19th of October, 2022. Northern Territory applications remain open until Friday, the 17th of January, 2023. For more information, visit agrifutures.com.au slash RWA. Okay, you just stepped down as the chair of AgriFutures, which when you started was, of course, Rurik, the Rural Industries Research and Development Corporation. Um, I can say it like that because I used to be a journo, used to it. (laughs) Um, I want to talk about women and agriculture and leadership, which, of course, is what AgriFutures and the Rural Women's Award is all about celebrating emerging leaders. Um, as you step down, what's your reflection on that now? Oh, I was very engaged and involved many years ago as a member of parliament because John Anderson, who was um, the deputy um, prime minister and the leader of the nationals at times, was very involved in that program as well. And we would have, uh, you know, you would have women come in from the program and they would shadow you in various meetings and across parliament. John was very engaged in that program and I've got to give him credit for that. And his staff were very engaged in that program. So I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, So my first day in the job, actually with the board, uh, I want to reflect on that because my first board meeting was in Canberra um, and my first function was the Rural Women's Award Gala Dinner that night. And so I hadn't met my board. Um, I went to the gala. I had to go on the stage. I had to be the chair of AgriFuture, of, of Rurik that evening. And I looked around the room and, we, you know, it was very few people, very few tables, and there was sort of like a curtaining along the back of it to have like more than half the Great Hall of Parliament, Mm -hmm. right, so that it looked like there was a lot of people in there. And I came off the stage and I said to the MD, you know, how much do we charge for this dinner? And he said, well, do you really want to know? And I thought, oh, gosh, we must be charging a fortune. 
because there's nobody here, you know. And um, I looked around, there was a lot of staffers there and, you know, a few MPs and a few senators and, you know, some sponsors um, and the women, of course. And uh, and he said, um, well, we charge, we don't charge, we pay for it. And I was like, we pay for it? And he said, yes. And so I... I did have a sleepless night that night. I was thinking something's got to change. What these? I saw the most incredible woman, women profiled on that stage that evening. They were amazing, you know. And I just thought this can't be right. So I thought, you know what? I, I'm going to make a change. So I went to the board, my first board meeting, and I said, okay, other business, we're going to charge for this Real Women's Award, and we're going to expose these amazing women to people who can further their careers, who are interested in our women because they're out there and they just want an opportunity. But if we're closing shop because we have to, we can have to limit our numbers mm. and we've got to have invitations to MPs and senators and, you know, all, we, we, we're reducing our exposure for these women and we need to work out how, if I was a corporate, I would be looking at how can I increase that exposure? And, of course, that's the aim and objective, you know, to develop women. And anyhow, it was a hard decision to make, but we made it. And I'm grateful to that board because, and then I got enormous pushback, significant pushback. I was like, appreciate the point about the MC. Yeah. And we were paying, Was we had a female MC and, and that was fantastic. Of course, we should. We had female MCs, but we're very paying very high prices for the female MC, and I did feel very strongly that we were going. The, these finalists were going through a year of development and getting courage and getting, a, you know, to be able to present. Surely we should. That should be their finale that evening. They should be able to have an opportunity to present and to utilise those skills and to give them confidence that they can do it. And then they can go out on the speaking market, you know. They can be out. In this, but if they don't get that opportunity, how are they ever going to get the courage to put themselves out there in the speaker's market that commands a price when they start to get a, you know, a, a, you know. So, and even if they don't command the price, it's still valuable. Their view is valuable, you know, mm -hmm. and um, it's not all about money. It's a valuable view that you get from hearing a woman, okay? And so um, I decided to change that we would not do that in the future, that our last year's winner would be our MC and they would be given and then we would have former winners introducing their state finalists that year. You know, because the MC was introducing the finalists, right? Hmm. I thought, well, hang on, we've developed all these women. Let's bring the alumni in and get them engaged and start getting them introducing their states. You know, their 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 finalists. You know, their winner. And 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 let's bring women together. And so, yeah, I just decided to make those changes, and I'm so grateful that I did because. I've seen the most amazing. We've got we were held up with COVID, um, so we lost a year of that, you know, that or two of that presentation, yeah, and um, and we did online. But oh my goodness, I've seen some great stage performances, um, and the confidence. 
you know, one particular, and I, I shouldn't name people, I won't, I'll just say one particular woman. Oh, I said to her the other night, oh, look at you, the difference, the growth, mm. the confidence in her. Mm. She could speak to thousands now. She could go on to any international market and she'd walk on that stage and she'd own it. But she was not like that when I first met her. Oh, my goodness, no. Even that, I can see in her in her demeanour, in, in the way she holds and presents herself, in her confidence, she's a different woman and it just makes me so proud. And so the change to the Rural Women's Awards has de delivered not 190 people because we had to cap because we had a price we could only afford to pay. We had 540 sell out and we had a huge waiting list for people wanting to buy tables. And in those there were the opportunities of corporates and businesses and, you know, engage people who see amazing women and and get, you know, and 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 they can choose to say, you know what, you know, I, I'd like to approach her to, but it's a recognition of factor. Even if not one of these women were approached, people are paying to come and see these women, which was my response to one of the questions that were directed at me as a criticism that I was going to absolutely ruin the award, it would no longer exist because I was imposing a fee. Mm -hmm. And my, my response to that was, so are you saying to me that we have to pay people to come and celebrate amazing women? Because if that's what you're saying to me, we will never reconcile women to be valuable and important if we've got to pay people to come and view what they have to offer and what they're achieving. And that's my that's my that's my feeling entirely. Mm -hmm. And it's been vindicated and I've thanked the audience every time. And what you've time. also created is an ecosystem outside of um, those finalists and people who are a part of the award the award for rural women to come together, be inspired, um, be sitting in the same room as some incredible people. Absolutely. But not only that, the monies that we have saved have gone into the additional development of women. No longer are we, you know, we, we've actually been able to put more resources as a result of all of the savings and people paying to come in. we actually been developing women in a more intensive way. It was an enormous amount of resource put into Cara Peak. She did a fantastic job as an MC. But gosh, we and we have I've been so proud of the resources, the financial resources, the resources we've put into Cara and to all the other finalists, you know, and winners along the way. It's been extraordinary. And we've been only able to do that because people are paying to come and see amazing women. And we're diverting that you know, that revenue into a, a new program as well that runs alongside of the Rural Women's Awards that if you're not feeling confident and comfortable to go for the, the you know, what you think is the pinnacle, it's the development, um, professional development program that's running underneath that now, um, which is giving women new, new opportunity. And that's come from a decision to to make a bit of a bold decision and it's worked. It's worked, but we've made it work. Yeah. It, I mean, yes. What you say is so um, 
interesting for me and I think probably just business women in the bush everywhere that their um, product and what they're creating is has so much more effect than what is standing right in front of you as a product. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, you have to think about all the other elements that are coming to the fore. Absolutely. Absolutely you do. And you know what? Those women and men and men sitting in that room um, on Tuesday night, that was what they were seeing and believing of themselves and seeing that they could do. Yeah. You know, they were actually seeing. And a comment was made to me. I made comment on, you know, a number of things, but a, a comment was made to me from a woman um, who came to me afterward and she was probably slightly younger than me but she made a comment you know um, about uh, some of the content of my of my address to um, the the dinner she said to me um, I pay uh, significant funds to go to counseling uh, to get that advice that I just received for free so, you know, don't underestimate what we think might be mundane and, and just our everyday lives. Don't underestimate what that can mean to other people. You know, I'm such a basic person, honestly. I'm so grassroots, down to earth. I am, I, I just, my, my son says to me, Mum, you're just an anomaly, you know, like <laughs> you, don't, you believe so much in women, but you also believe that, Everyone has equity and value and, you know, you know, I feel strongly that, you know, what I thought was just ordinary, everyday, you know, ho-hum life of K-Hull, um, when I engage on that life, for other people, it give, has given them um, some impetus to feel, um, well, I think like that and, you know, I can, I, I can do this. Mm-hmm. And she said, I'd love to do what you're doing. Oh, that was so inspiring, but I could never do it and blah, blah, blah. I said, and then I had to say to her, you know what, I've seen you. You're at the secretary of the footy. You're the treasurer of the cricket. You're, you're the, you know, you're everywhere that you're in. You are doing it. You are leading. She said, you're such a leader. I'd love to be a leader. If only I could, I, I wish I could be a leader. What is your advice? You are a leader. Look at you. Look at all of the things you're leading in. You're already doing it. Trust yourself. You're doing it. You just keep on going in leadership. Oh, so yes. many women everywhere need to hear that. Kay, I want to end by saying that your life in your direction more immediately has taken a little bit of a different turn. Tell me what's happening there. Yes. Another woman that I'm extraordinarily proud of which gave me enormous courage this year, but also enormous pain and uh, and anguish and uh, questioning my, you know, ability to how do I adopt and cope with this was that my daughter-in-law um, was diagnosed with t- terminal brain tumour and I became her carer and her power of attorney, her enduring guardian, her her spokesperson over her advanced directive, her end-of-life decisions I was to make, um, her, her whole life I was in charge of, her whole being, her selling off her home and her, you know, all of her possessions, 
it was all my it was all entrusted to me and it was the greatest honor and privilege that I was this was entrusted to me because her and my son are divorced and they have been since 2014 mm-hmm. and yet this woman uh want to we're so close her and I and that, that was the condition I said my son and her you two may be separating may not be able to live together you two may be divorcing but I'm not divorcing either of from either of you I am with you both and do not expect me to take sides because it's never going to happen okay and I have been true to that word with my daughter-in-law we I've been we have been just together and united on everything okay and um She's the mother of my two grandsons. And so the journey was very difficult, but difficult for me in the fact that she gave me more courage and strength. She was so, um, she met her, her, you know, diagnosis with such amazing strengths and confidence. And she was giving people, you know, she was calming and giving people the hugs that she felt they needed because they couldn't deal with her diagnosis. Mm. She was the one giving the compassionate understanding to them. Um, And she was dying. And um, gosh, I witnessed a new strength and extraordinary being in another woman. So something new happens every day that that gives you more focus and more passion and appreciation. And I had that with her. I watched her and I had such pride in her and such um, privilege and honour. And she, um, I made a choice that I wanted to give her the best end of life that I could with my grandsons and that we would all enjoy it and it would, we would sing and dance to the end. And, um, and so I made a decision and, and waited for the minister to be elected um, into the new parliament. And then I approached the new minister, Murray Watt. Now, I'm the president, the federal president of the National Party of Australia, okay? Um, and I've approached the Labor minister um, that's come in and and opened up to him and wanted and said, you know, I, I, I would like to, I have a, th- a three-year appointment right in the process um and there was no desire to take me out of that appointment for that process uh but i needed to retire and i didn't i so i spoke i i contacted the minister and it gave him you know my all of my reasoning there was a number of reasons and look oh my goodness i couldn't have asked for more attention and more support um you know it was my decision my decision entirely um, you know, and so we, um, I made that decision that I would retire and spend that time with my daughter-in-law and my grandsons and we would, as I said, dance and sing to the end and be happy every day. And there were tears, but there were more laughs than tears. But unfortunately, my daughter-in-law passed away. It is now four weeks now, just just now, um, and she passed away. And But I still decided to make that decision uh, so that... My grandsons have lost their mum. They've had a divorce in their family. It's, it's um, you know, I need to be there when they need me. And uh, so I've made that decision and I announced that decision uh, that I would not be on this stage next year. 
for the gala awards, even though I, everyone knows that I've got a, another three-year appointment, that I was going to seek my retirement. I was working with the minister, and I am, and it's not a date in it. It's just when we can transition through, you know, so it's seamless and it just keeps going. And out of that change will come something different. You will see. Mm. What do you hope to do in the next year or two? Just not sure. Um, more grassroots. Yeah, and I'm work. I, I'm strongly involved in palliative care. Have been uh, since my husband passed away ten years ago. Mm. Delivering a palliative unit, I chair a council that oversights. Um, we call ourselves the Calvary Palliative Care Enhancement Council. We oversight the best world best practice on end of life. That end of life, my my passion is end of life should be equally celebratory as the beginning of life. We celebrate when babies come into the world. We should be passionate and celebrating the lives of what people have given in no matter any journey they've been in. They have contributed something and they should be valued for that. So I've been there 10 years doing that and I want to engage even further in that. And uh, after, particularly after the introduction of uh, voluntary assisted dying, uh, you have to have a choice. If you, I, yeah, if you want to have voluntary assisted dying, absolutely. But if you have no choice of quality palliative care, then you haven't got a choice. So you have to have two run by side by side, so that you really know you are giving people are exercising the the choice of their, you know, of their views and values, not because they have to. Um, and so, you know, I, I feel very passionate. I was extraordinary. The one thing that I felt that um, it's been mentioned that I received a standing ovation for my speech or for my address, on, which was so surprising to me on Tuesday night, which raised a question I didn't know how to deal with it. Um, I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't expect that in any way, shape or form. I didn't know how to deal with it. I... You didn't did. need to deal with it? I know. I didn't know how. I didn't know. Did I, did, you know, see? I didn't know. Oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, I questioned myself. Did I uh, I did I deserve that? Do you know what I mean? Isn't that funny? Mm -hmm. um, but you know what? Then I very quickly, quickly, quickly came to, you know what? They didn't give me. It wasn't Kay Hull. They gave, they gave what I was trying to say. They gave the respect to women. And they gave the respect of what I was trying to say. Please don't let lack of education for those people who, have, who may not get access to it. Let's celebrate education, but let's celebrate equally those who may not have had the fortune of being able to be educated. Let's celebrate what they have to give in life. And let us not be so, you know, let us not be so discerning on one way or another everybody has value and that's how I dealt with it because it was very overwhelming <laughs> actually made me quite emotional I um what a woman you are Kay I feel very honored to have been in the room with you the other night and also have been able to conduct this interview with you so I just thank you so much for all you have said and all you do and for sharing it so brilliantly and thank you for what you're doing in sharing Sky, because that is what is, that's also building confidence, resilience, giving women a voice. A 
think it's fitting to say that given the passing of Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth last week, I think maybe I could say that perhaps Kay Hull is one of the queens of rural Australia. She's seen many things. She operates with integrity, dedication and poise, and she most certainly leads from the heart. Thank you so much for tuning in. Whilst you're at it and maybe have a wee bit more time on your hands over summer, you'd be doing us an enormous favour if you could rate, review and subscribe to our podcast. It truly helps us get heard by others and expand the Grazy Her community. And while we're here, have you sorted yourself with a diary for the new year? If not, jump online to grazyher.com.au and pick yourself up one of Grazy Her's Women of the Land diaries. Collaborating with elders, the diary spotlights the incredible women who make rural Australia and agriculture so unique. With beautiful photography and handy goal-setting sections at the start of each month, this diary is just what you need to get gorgeously organised for 2023. Until next time, keep well. My name is Em Herbert, and this is a Grazy Herb podcast. <laughs>